Cells. Cells. Have you ever been in an institution? Cells. Cells. Do they keep you in a cell? Cells. Cells. When you're not performing your duties, do they keep you in a little box? Cells. Cells. Interlinked. Interlinked. What's it like to hold the hand of someone you love? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do they teach you how to feel finger to finger? Interlinked. You're listening to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I am your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-host, Patrick Rain. How are you doing? I'm good. I feel like it's been a while since we recorded, but it has not been that long. It's been about two yeah. weeks, mm, which is a little bit more that. recent. We just recorded. When did we just record? With, that was two weeks ago, Jamie. That was no. I hate to break it to you. That was wow. two full full weeks ago. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Maybe even more than that. Anyway, um, in that time, a couple things have happened. One is we got uh, some listener responses that inspired today's episode, which we're going to get to in a moment. The other is uh, we got some new patrons. So I'm going to start with the patrons. Going back to, uh, let's go back to December 30th. We have Ola Steinus, Holden Wilhoit, Benjamin O'Mara, and Michael. And I want to give a special shout out to Eustacio Palomares, who somehow got uh, lost on the website. Uh, his name, I've since reinstated it. If anybody else notices that happens, sometimes the back in the Patreon uh acts a little weird uh let me know and i'll make sure you get back on the site so that's that's exciting thank you to all of our patrons who joined if you want to join them go to perfectorganism.com <laughs> it's the wrong show sorry go to bladerunnerpodcast.com yes. slash support <laughs> uh go to patreon.com slash perfect organism because we share that account and uh or just you know shoot us a message and we'll hook you up um back to why we're here tonight so you know i made it an incendiary statement on our last episode, I want to give myself a little bit of, uh, you know, an out here, which is that I, I used to refer to Blade Runner as cyberpunk a lot, and I would get occasional grumpy messages from people, including some people who own the license to Blade Runner, saying, pushing back on that idea, being like, oh, it's not really, you know, cyberpunk. And that got me thinking, well, I should probably be careful, you know, where I tread with this because I don't have the greatest understanding of what cyberpunk is. And we got a listener who is on here today with us, who I'll let Jamie introduce momentarily, who wrote in saying that he was aghast that I had called it not cyberpunk and brought up a lot of really great reasons why it is. So before we start this tonight, let me just, you know, say off the bat, I agree that it's cyberpunk. I, you have shown me the error of my ways, so we don't have to have a debate about it. But I do want to learn more because I personally feel like I'm uh, I'm lacking some cyberpunk knowledge. So, uh, so Jamie, you want to go ahead and introduce the listener and then we can introduce our other very special guest as well? Absolutely. So... This evening, or whenever time of day you're listening to this, we have on two guests, but our first guest I'm introducing is a fr friend of mine, long-term friend, but also long-term listener of both Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast, and Bla Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, A.T. Johnson. Thank you for coming on the show. Oh, thanks very much. It's uh, it's really exciting to be here. I, you know, as, I love both the shows. Uh, I love those films, really, especially Blade Runner. I mean, I generally would say that's my favorite film. So very stoked to be here. And... Um, yeah, I wasn't about to attack you, uh, Patrick. I have mad respect, but but yeah, touche. We'll get into it. Cheers. <laughs> this is a voice that you're going to hear that will be familiar to at least maybe half of you who listen to our other show. Uh, we have the author T.R. Knapper on. So I'm going to introduce him momentarily. And before I do, a little background. So, so T.R. or Tim... Uh, was recently on Perfect Organism to talk about Aliens Bishop, which is his fantastic novel that came out a few months ago in the Alien Universe. And by virtue of, you know, getting to know him through that, we realized that he's also 
like an actual recognized expert in cyberpunk and Blade Runner and writes a lot of novels that are set in that kind of aesthetic universe and has a lot to say about it. So uh, without further ado, Tim or T.R. Knapper, welcome back to uh, our shows tonight. I'm glad to be back. And I was I was uh, I was very excited when I found out. Wait, I mean, I did, of course, that was awesome to go on Perfect Organism. But then to see that you had a sister podcast just for Blade Runner. And I'm like, I love, and I, and I kind of, ever since I saw that, I kind of des- not desperately wanted to come on, but I really wanted to come on. I, and I told one of your fellow hosts, Christian, I'm like, you know, if you ever want me to come on to the other one, I'd be more than happy to. But yes, uh, in terms of, I got sent an email, email by these guys saying, um, we're going to discuss whether Blade Runner is cyberpunk. And I screamed with, incandescent rage what 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 why is this even a question god damn it but we'll get into that thank you for coming on the show to preface the listeners patrick probably knows more than me which which is the case most of the time (laughs) but um i i've heard cyberpunk thrown around with blade runner i've heard people within the blade runner community who are respected people say it is not cyberpunk i don't know enough about what cyberpunk is to know whether that's true or not. And this, this conversation isn't really about whether Blade Runner, like we're not going to be arguing whether Blade Runner is cyberpunk or not. This is a discussion about the genre of cyberpunk within the context of Blade Runner and how that matches up. Um, and for my, my own um, background on this topic, I've, you know, I've been familiar with that term for many years now, and I've been in a couple of groups dedicated to cyberpunk, and I would see people post about it. And this, I had a conversation with AT privately, thinking like cyberpunk isn't really that cool. Like it's it's a. I I, I was uh, I would talk to AT privately, and I would say to him, cyberpunk doesn't necessarily it wasn't it's not that cool of a thing. Like it's a very dystopian world. It's very harsh. The conditions are harsh. People are augmenting their bodies with technology. Like it might look cool, but I wouldn't want to live there. It's um, there wasn't this. It seemed like people were turning this thing that wasn't really necessarily cool into this cool thing. And I would look at it very logically. Like I don't want to live in that world. This isn't that exciting, but with Blade Runner, but this is also, I'm contradicting myself as well. Like within the world of Blade Runner, I would like to live there, but that's not a very in- nice environment either. So I don't know really what's going on with me and and those ideas. But <laughs> both <laughs> mixed messages and <laughs> I know, I know, I know. I'm a contradiction, um, but we all are at times. But before we get into those questions, um, my first question for you, At, is when did you get into Blade Runner? What was that journey like? I've got to say, I I cannot recall a time when I wasn't aware of it, it's similar to the star Wars thing. And I know it would have come a little bit later, but um, at some point as a kid, like a prepubescent kid, you know, I definitely had the, the theatrical with the voiceover and I knew enough at the time to be like, Oh, this is doing that old school pulp noir stuff. And I mean, I must've been, I would have been 10 in 85. And I feel like it was right around there. But I mean, as far as, trying to go back to where it was it's just it's just always been there you know it's like thinking of the house you grew up in pretty much so the, the journey's just been you know i fell in love with it and then discovering the uh you know the cut without getting into the home video thing just more and more kept watching it kept watching it and um 
it's just so hypnotic, you know, uh, everything about it. We'll, we'll get into the random things that make it amazing as we go. So needless to say, but it, you know, it struck me. Enhanced 224 to 176. Well, you're here on the Blade Runner podcast to talk about it, so it apparently struck you pretty mm-hmm. hard. Um, <laughs> while we're at this, also, Tim, can you give us a little of your background with Blade Runner? Were you, uh, like, when did it kind of come on your radar and how's it influenced you? Yeah, I'm a bit like AT. I can't, uh, I don't have that lightning bolt moment of, of, of watching the film for the first time and being blown away. Like I was, because you had you had this question on your Aliens podcast, and Aliens, I, I remember the first time I watched that. But Blade Runner, I don't, I much, I, I probably, I watched the one with the voiceover and the theatrical cut, and, and then I, 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 I can't remember it. But it's one of those movies that's grown and grown on me over the years, and the director's cut and the final cut. And it got to a point where it felt like it's always been in my life, it's, it's also it's also the film where like with books someone says what's your favorite book and I'm like oh that's a tough question give me twenty but if someone says to me what's your favorite film I'm like Blade Runner that that's an easy answer for me um, uh, I mean of course we will get into it the aesthetics and the themes uh, of that are, I are just extraordinary I, st- oh, I started to watch it again last night I haven't watched it in a couple of years I started to watch it last night just to prepare for this uh, man that's still that's such a that's a work of art you know that film but i can't but the, the initial question i don't can't remember the first time i have to say interesting so i guess to kind of get us into the conversation tonight i'm going to take us back to my uh my uh misstatement a, a couple of weeks ago I, don't, I want to give some of my reasoning behind why i said that uh, in addition to having just gotten flamed out by some people over the years for saying that it's cyberpunk so so my experience my experience with cyberpunk personally I read Neuromancer. That was a, a big book when I was, you know, uh, I read it when I was a, a high school student. I played Cyberpunk 2077, the video game, um, when it came out, which unfortunately, um, you know, I, I, I consume some of this media, Akira, things like that. You know, I, I have some degree of background with it. Uh, and Observer, which is a game. I, have either of you ever played Observer, uh, Tim or AT? No, uh, I, haven't, okay, I don't this- even know if I've heard of that one. So this, I, I, this is like the third episode in a row of both shows where I've been plugging this game because we just beat it again and it's just an incredible work of art. It's it's probably Rucker Howard's final thing that he ever did. He did the voice work for it and it is like the most Blade Runner and the most cyberpunk in, you know, kind of capital C cyberpunk game uh, I've like ever played. What's and it called? Ob- Observer, is it? Observer, yeah. And it's by this uh, studio out of Poland called Bloober. And it's just a, it's like a sci-fi horror cyberpunk game where you, you know, travel through dreams to solve terrible crimes that have happened. And, you know, everybody is augmented and it's just this really uh, dystopian, like profoundly dystopian future where people are living in these encampments. And it feels like incredibly cyberpunk to me. Um, I'm a big fan of Judge Dredd, which I would kind of put in that category as well. But one thing that many of these works have in common to me is what Jamie was mentioning, which is the idea of kind of fusing with our machines, right? And and the, some of the horrors that that can, can, you know, bring about. So when I look at Blade Runner, because that's absent from it, 
that that seems to me like it could be a little bit of a divider between cyberpunk and, and non-cyberpunk, or maybe cyberpunk and biopunk, which I know sometimes Blade Runner gets talked about being. I guess to kind of get into this, either of you can start. What's the case for Blade Runner being a cyberpunk work? Uh, I'll jump in <laughs> since since I instigated this. Um, I, there, I, I've got some things here about sort of the history of cyberpunk and some of the sort of precursory things and also like tropes. I tried to do like what, what's an essential, what are things that need to be there for something to be called a cyberpunk, uh, you know, piece of media. Um, of course, there's no gospel on the matter, right? But I think you hit it fundamentally, the number one thing that is even more important than whether it's dystopian, I think is just the, uh, the human machine interface situation, you know, uh, whether it's augmentation or of course, in the case of Blade Runner, you could argue that, you know, a human having, having sex with a replicant would be a human machine interface of sorts. Um, but yeah, I think that's the key thing. And then on top of that, it's, you know, urban, urban setting, urban blight, right. Um, I feel like classism is a big thing. And I think also, um, perhaps really significant and doesn't get talked about a lot is this kind of David and Goliath, like outlaw versus system sort of dynamic that I, it, I would be hard pressed to think of a cyberpunk tale that didn't include that. Um, so yeah. And especially you get high tech, low life thrown around as the catchphrase to just define cyberpunk. And I mean, you look at like, as I was saying to Jamie, you look at, look at Leon, you look at, uh, you know, you've got someone who's like a homeless person in Chris technically. Right. And, a sex worker and then you've got like an exotic dancer like the, these would all be low lives by standards of people who would probably even use that term in the first place and clearly they are themselves high tech aside from just the environment so for, for those reasons right there um and the whole underdog dynamic and also there's sort of like the street street finds its own uses for things you get in in neuromancer and i mean you you've got like you know Blade Runner Jawas like stealing stuff right off of the, the car when a cop is sitting there, right? Like that's talking about the streets having their own uses for, for tech. So, and plus corporatocracy, that's the other big thing. You know, when you've got that Goliath character, it's, it's pretty much always corporate. So yeah, those would be the, the big ones, you know, and all the neon, the whole, the whole urban and just delicious, super information dense environment. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with everything AT says that there's, there's all, I think they're all um, dimensions of cyberpunk. I think very briefly, to, before I dive into a definition, which is hard, by the way, because I spend a, a thesis defining this, so <laughs> I'm not going to give you a thesis, but Jamie said, oh, it doesn't have, some of the people said to him, it doesn't have body modifications or or in sort of invasiveness in the body. I don't think that's a necessary condition, but I think that if you look at Japanese cyberpunk, it almost always has it. I think body horror and invasion of the body uh, and transformation of the body in Japanese cyberpunk is deeply linked to their experience with uh, the Second World War and being nuked at the end of it. This looms large in the Japanese consciousness and culture. And if you look at nearly all Japanese cyberpunk involves some sort of body horror or body invasion. If you look at Akira, which is one of the first, that movie starts with the nuclear blast blowing up the city. That's the start. And then he gets mutated and so forth. 
So that would be my answer to that. I think body horror and in, in the invasion of the body and body modification, I think is a big part of cyberpunk, but I don't think it's necessary because, for example, some people would say Black, Black Mirror is cyberpunk. I think they're probably right. A lot of that has no doesn't have any body modification. There, of course, there's some, there's high tech, low life, and um, I sometimes call cyberpunk the literature of defiance. But can I go to the origins of what I think were the origins of cyberpunk deep down? That sounds fantastic. And before you do, just um, because our listeners have different degrees of fluency with a lot of the terms tonight, if you wouldn't mind defining some of these. So like AT, you did a good job, I think, of getting at what low life means, but I know that's kind of like a it's a, a term, you know, in cyberpunk. So so if you can define things like that too, I think it would just be helpful for everybody to follow along. The influence of hard boiled fiction on neuromancer and cyberpunk are very clear, including from the creators. Very briefly, what's hard boiled fiction? Well, it was Hammett, Dashiell Hammett kind of considered to be the I'll try and be quick, by the way. I don't want I don't want to make any of your listeners um go to sleep. But Dashiell Hammett was considered the first writer. He started writing hardboiled fiction. Uh, he went. He was at World War One. He saw the horrors of industrialised warfare. He was writing during the Great Depression. He saw the rise of fascism in Europe. He worked for the Pinkertons, which for your listeners were a, a, a detective agency that was basically a, a fascist union-busting agency in the United States. So his view Dashiell Hammett's view of the present and the future was quite dark. It was of urbanisation, the dark city, unchecked capitalism, the alienation of the individual in all of this. Um, and so he wrote the hardball novels, the hardball novels like, uh, what is it, Maltese Falcon and, say, mm-hmm. uh, Double Indemnity and uh, The Big Sleep all got turned into film noir, Film noir had a very distinct aesthetic style, uh, 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 and then which kind of became neo noir, which I think became well tech noir, which is another word for cyberpunk. So before cyberpunk was coined as a term in eighty three, Blade Runner came out in nineteen eighty two, and it was being called science fiction noir. And I've seen, I think there's a book on it called Future Noir. I think they call it for um, for, for for about the the art of Blade Runner. So I consider Neuromancer and Blade Runner the the twin foundational events of cyberpunk. Ridley Scott and William Gibson both said they were inspired by hardboiled fiction. Both of them, one of them says Hammett and one of them says Chandler, and I always get mixed up by who's talking about who. So it goes all the way back to then, and I think that, so I think hardboiled fiction forms part of the source code for cyberpunk. But I think Blade Runner is the aesthetic source code for cyberpunk as well. Um, So I I think that, of course, Ridley Scott took ideas from film noir, but Blade Runner is so iconic, so so visually iconic, uh, and has been so inspirational, especially in science fiction, in cyberpunk in general, that's we always go back to that as like the um the ur text if you want to call it that the 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 reference point in a way and certainly in my imagination that's the city that's the world um which is urban decay and multicultural and polluted and teeming and neon drenched and with extreme climactic conditions 
Um, these are all, hall, I think, hallmarks of cyberpunk. And I think part of the origin, obviously Philip K. Dick and some other science fiction is a big influence, but I really think hardball fiction is where we start. And given, uh, and I think that Blade Runner becomes this, this new version of the hard-boiled, of the noir, and it's it's the starting point for cyberpunk. So it could have easily been called Future Noir, and if no one, had, if William Gibson had never come up with uh, with cyberpunk, well, never popularized the idea of cyberpunk, we'd probably be calling it science fiction noir at the moment. I think it was Gibson who cited Chandler, by the way. Um, but it is just a continuation of the noir, you know, with with the tech stuff. Also, Scott and Gibson, I believe, have both referenced um, the Incall, which was by you know Yodorowsky and and Mobius, uh, a comic book, and there's a particularly famous like splash page from a story called suicide alley and it's got this jumper and it's just this giant canyon with little sidewalks that are lining the various levels and it goes down so far that you actually the you see the vanishing point before you can see the bottom of this city and there's one particular cylindric cylindrical building that's sort of far down and always when i see that one cylindrical building in blade runner i'm like man he pulled that right out of that mobius drawing um, and I'm not sure where I saw Gibson, but both of those guys um, referred to, to that drawing in particular and Mobius's art of futuristic cities in general. And I would also say that um, visual cues are owed all the way back to Fritz Long and, and Metropolis. Mm. Um, yeah. That was a huge visual influence on, I would say, that film and just cyberpunk in general. Just that, you know, that heap, heaped up crazy mega city also probably inspired a lot of the, the Judge Dredd stuff. But yeah, Judge Dredd is huge, too. Um, and while it's on my brain, I think that maybe the two big things that are the reason we get people who would say that Blade Runner doesn't count, typically you've got, you know, the ubiquity of the internet. Um, it was kind of anticipated in a lot of cyberpunk and pre-cyberpunk. That's an extremely key element, needless to say. Um, and then, of course, the human augmentation thing. So, you you know, you don't really have a hacking element happening in Blade Runner. Um, there could maybe be cases made for it, you know, but, but there's not really. Uh, and as to the the augmentation, um, you don't necessarily see it, but I would posit that uh, Chu's eyes, you know, he's clearly designing those eyes. So if you want to say that that's bio as opposed to cyber, I would think that, you know, if you're at the point where you're designing eyes, like that's that's still a subset of cyber where if you got those, right, they don't have mechanical parts. If they were engineered and created in a lab, I would think that that kind of qualifies. But I'm thinking if Chu's got those eyes, are they only going in androids? There's probably some or rich aristos out there and corporates and people off world that, you know, have artificial eyes, whether because their eyes were faulty or because they just wanted better ones or ones that could do, you know, whatever other things. And I think that JF's little Napoleon boy, um, you know, jiggity jig, like there's an actor's real eyes there in that character, but it's like, Hey, those eyes in world, those might be, those might be chew eyes in there. Right. So who knows where they all are and what are the kind of parts might be in people that we just aren't aware, you know? Yeah. I forgot. And I just, I just remembered uh, there was, uh, and another important link for this argument is William Gibson, of course, his Neuromancer came out in 84, right? So he was writing the novel when Blade Runner came out. He went to the movies and watched Blade Runner and walked out shell-shocked because he thought everyone was going to think he plagiarised Blade Runner for Neuromancer. So he was coming to this vision at the same time as Ridley Scott Um and was kind of disappointed that Ridley Scott got there first with with the and he said he actually changed some things in Neuromancer 
because of this, um, because he, he went and saw Blade Runner. So you go, it. Yeah, no, just, I mean, it, you know, makes me think of that Charles Fort quote, you know, uh, it's steam engines when it comes steam engine time. Like, it's just, it, the zeitgeist was, it was coalescing, right? It was kind of meant to be, and those were the two, I fully agree, those are those are the pillars, right? Whatever else you're going to look at, I mean, you can look at some music or whatnot, but you're going to say Blade Runner, Neuromancer, and it's almost as if they're referencing each other, and I think that that, that reason is because they're just drawing from, you know, almost an absolutely identical pool of inspiration. So, yeah. They also, they, they, they both are drawing on other cultural movements that are happening, like you're both alluding to at the time, like the punk movement, right? Which was still relatively recent history by this point. I know that was a huge influence on Gibson, but I think it's also obviously a huge aesthetic influence, if nothing else, on Blade Runner, because you can see in the costuming and things that, you know, the, 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 the sort of the punk mentality is alive and well. And I think that's part of why it feels so like aesthetically fresh, because that wasn't something that we had really seen before. This idea yeah. of merging, you know, like sci-fi with dystopia, with punk um you know fashion uh but also the punk mentality this kind of you know like you have to take the system down by you mm. know, brutal honesty and by you know like coming up to like you know tear down the walls of capitalism and things and i think that I'm, you know going no, back to go. well going back to fritz long like you you know were mentioning earlier uh that's been there since the very beginning too just something else i'm just picking out and what you're both talking about that's interesting is all of the works that you're mentioning have at their core a detective narrative of some kind which i think is something i hadn't you know even considered until this conversation tonight because i have been very trapped in this idea that cyberpunk is is an aesthetic thing right that it is this like biohacking and it's you know big data hacking stuff and you know high tech low life uh but i think uh, a lot of it is also a narrative idea it's this like shaggy dog trying to find the truth in an increasingly chaotic and complex environment and what I love about it is it sets up these situations where the truth is so obscured, partly because reality is also obscured, right? So there's like layers of reality to sift through in a lot of cyberpunk work. I think a great example of that is The Matrix, which I would also, you know, classify as being cyberpunk. Um, and of course, The Matrix, you know, owes a huge debt to Blade Runner and obviously William Gibson as well. But also to uh, a lot of like the, you know, it, it's sort of like what Blade Runner might have looked like if it had been made 10 or 15 years later because the internet, you know, was a thing at that point. And this idea of the internet being the, this dystopia that we're disappearing into, you know, is all over um, the Matrix. And I think it's kind of what part of why it speaks to its era just as, as eloquently, I think, as Blade Runner spoke to its. So, yeah, I'm just kind of just listening to what you're both saying and taking out my, you know, kind of semi-newbie takeaways from it. Uh, it's It's making me think again that that cyberpunk is a narrative idea as well as an aesthetic one i have a question so this is a uh, a layman's question what does the cyber mean in cyberpunk how do you break that down what does that mean i've got four things i want to say to what patrick said but i'm going to let at take the cyber part um but i, I think i want to touch go back in a minute just to some of the things that patrick was talking about Okay, well, I'll just jump in and say, I mean, I think it's best exemplified with the word uh, cyborg, right, which is clearly meant to be half, uh, half, half organic, half mechanical. And so I can see why that's why some people would say that Blade Runner is more, more bio, but I would still say bio is a subcategory. But yeah, I think it means it's, again, that whole, you know, human machine uh, blending. That's essentially what, what you've got, right? And it, which is, and that's why Black Mirror, I think, would count anything that's addressing, you know, Black Mirror is named after cell phones, right? And it's like, we, mm. these, may be, these may be external devices, but the, it's an external organ, you know? It's, we have internal organs, 
our phones are an external organ. If anyone who thinks that they're not a cyborg who is remotely addicted to their phone, just think again, you know? But yeah, I think that's essentially it. It's just that, that machine element, whether it's dealing with AI and the ubiquity of, you know, the idea that there's like maybe an AI watching through the video cameras that are around you or listening through the microphones that are around, or more so just, again, the, the augmentation chip, right? Someone's got a robot eye or a robot arm or whatever. So I think that's just kind of, in a cyberpunk world, the, the world is basically a cyborg at that point, you know? Patrick was mentioned like four really cool things, but one of them is punk. Yeah. It's there in the name. Cyberpunk is punk. And so I, I did, I wrote an article um, a while back on uh, what is, essentially what is cyberpunk, but it was more, I called it a cyberpunk manifesto, but that's really overblown. It was just, I was really just wanted to define it because it's such a complex term. But if if we take the punk part, well, punk is anti-elite. Punk takes the side of the downtrodden. It's anti-totalitarian, and that could be surveillance capitalism. It could be the slavery. It's slavery we see in in Blade Runner, and it says it's in the opening. I'd forgotten this in the opening crawl where it says replicants are slaves. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's for them. It's a pure totalitarian world where they're not even allowed to have feelings, and so that's so they get hunted down, so they can't have too many. Um, I think punk is countercultural. Um, I think. And by that I mean we are we're not telling bedtime stories. Um, we're telling stories that make you uncomfortable, and it can make people on all sides uncomfortable. Punks at the time were kind of offensive to everyone, <laughs> uh, and, and and punk is very anti-corporate. You cannot get, I mean, Blade Runner <laughs> at its core is an anti-corporate film. The corporations rule. The state is in decline. The police department is kind of a uh, is kind of um working at the behest of the Tyrell Corporation. They've got you've got your Blade Runner who is uh, touching on another thing. You said Patrick is a hardball detective. He's not a cop. He's not he's not quite a civilian either. He's in this middle ground. Uh, in much the same way, you can look at Major Matoko in Ghosts in the Shell. She's a cop, but she's also completely cyborg. Her body is owned by the police. If she leaves, she can't keep her memories. So she's not actually, in a sense, she's not a fully, doesn't have the, is not treated as a a police officer either. She's in this middle ground as well. So there's very often hard-boiled detective types in these sort of films. But, yeah, sorry, as I was saying, cyberpunk is punk, and I think... For me, Blade Runner has all of those dimensions of punk thematically. And Patrick, you were talking about the aesthetics. It's all punk all the way down. So I think that's a central point in understanding what cyberpunk is. And again, you mentioned on the, you were focusing on the aesthetics of cyberpunk. I think that's the mistake a lot of cyberpunk, some cyberpunk writers and some cyberpunk filmmakers make is that it's so gorgeous. It's so sexy, the aesthetics of this world, that they forget that at its heart there's this dark core of thematic issues that they just kind of don't they don't they don't address, and it becomes this pastiche of maybe a hardball detective, maybe there's a femme fatale, but it's all really sexy, and we're all wearing leather, and we've got our mirror glasses on, but the the core thematic issues aren't touched, and you know I think you really need to have both of those 
to be true cyberpunk. I certainly think Blade Runner has both. Uh, and again, I think it set the template, not just with its visuals, but it continue on this skepticism of, moder of modernity. Shakes. Me too. I get them bad. <clears throat> Part of the business. I'm not in the business. I am the business. I'm going to jump in and just say, yeah, uh, 100% agree about the punk thing. I mean, the whole punk aesthetic is, you know, you've got, you've got the, the DIY aesthetic, which is clearly on hand, the, the whole street level struggle, you know, against the system kind of thing, uh, criminal outlaw vibe. That's totally there. And this brings to mind, um, William Gibson, you know, cited famously that William S. Burroughs was such an influence on him that he had to do multiple drafts to write the Burroughs out of his system. And I mean, Burroughs, especially Naked Lunch, which I'm sure he's referring to by and large there, although things like, like Junkie uh, make sense as well. Like that is, you can't get more punk rock than Naked Lunch. And this is a book that came out, what, written in the late 40s, you know, kind of coming around in the 50s. Like this guy was punk rock waiting to happen, you know, without without the time to wait for it. Um, so I think the, the Burroughs influence cannot be over stressed and um he's just right tied up in that whole punk thing you know and burroughs famously said someone asked him about the hippie thing like you know, what do you think about giving what do you think about the hippie movement ginsburg is in it you know burroughs said oh emphatically no for me it's the only way i would ever give a flower to a cop is you know in a in a ceramic pot from four stories up i mean that's pretty punk rock I, so i for me myself i, I do love sci-fi i, I think in, in in context of this conversation, we could probably argue that Alien, the Alien saga, is cyberpunk as well. A lot of those things are happening within those films, but that's another discussion for another time. Um, I think I, I'm a fan of character and story. I'm not that um, seduced by cyberpunk per se, although I do love the aesthetic of, of Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049. What is the seduction of it? What, what is it about that world that draws people to it? Because it's not this fun world to live in. So I'm curious, mm. I'm curious the in on this, because I want to know like why people love it so much. Why cyberpunk 2077 is this big, huge deal. What, what is it about it? I think that something else I wanted to bring up is that a paranormal transdimensional mystical occult aspects are often there. You've got like, you've got voodoo loas in, uh, the sequel to to Neuromancer, Count Zero. You've got, you know, the Matrix has some strange stuff, especially when Neo kind of reaches into the mirror and ducks back on his finger. There, there's, it's not uncommon for some cyberpunk to delve into that realm of is there some sort of um, some sort of supernatural, like other dimensional world opening up here with you know online entities or potential to exist in a purely cyber realm. So I think that there's. I think that the, the appeal and the mystery and the draw and the sexiness of technology and uncharted technological waters uh, itself is a big part of the appeal. And I think that uh, it, you know, of course, just the aesthetics are gorgeous, you know, when you, you're dazzled by like a rain slicked neon Babylon 
kind of situation anywhere in a in a city with those elements it's just it's beautiful to behold it's kind of exciting um so i think it has that going for it but i think there's just a lot of this energy of not knowing what could happen and it's like in a world where you know the the shithead is already in flames so let's get our kicks like there's still there could be some kind of unpredictable miracle save that comes through you know some technological thing that maybe maybe it has a totally doomy dystopian end but maybe one of those streets finding its own uses could be something that is magical in a way where it seems like furthest world from magic i think i think that's a big part of it yeah that's a really good question why is it so seductive um i think that sometimes cyberpunk is accused of being too seductive um i see it as a literature i said before i call it the literature of defiance but i also think it's it's a it's a storytelling that is sending a warning to us um it's a i think it's a cry out a cry out uh uh, or I should say a raised fist against exploitation, against inequality, against marginalization. I mean, for me personally, I've always seen it as a a, a, a very rebellious form, as punk should be. But why is it so seductive? Why do we have all these we have all these dystopian ideas and people go, oh, that would be great. <laughs> Let's introduce that to our present. It's like it's a blueprint for some of the tech bros, you know. It's seductive because all those things look like Blade Runner is probably one of the most beautiful films of all time. <laughs> it's a work of art. So maybe we have that partly to blame. If you look at The Matrix, which is kind of the apotheosis of all the uh, the sexiness of cyberpunk, that's a sexy film, man. Like uh, they're all there, they got their sunnies on and then they got the leather pants and <laughs> What's their moss comes out and she they and of course in that there's a lot of wish fulfillment in a cyberpunk world if you think about it because we can do simulation we can we can modify our own bodies we can be anything we want to be so there's a kind of perversely or, or paradoxically I should say there's a kind of liberation within the within this dystopia liberation for in terms of identity simultaneously and I say paradoxically because. Because cyberpunk also is about dehumanization and about the destruction of our identity as well, yeah, trying to strip away the human. So why is it so sexy? I mean, it's just, I think it's just was rendered so beautifully by Ridley Scott. Um, and we can maybe imagine ourselves on those streets. Oh, I want, one other thing I wanted to say. I always have about six answers to every question you you two have asked, but some of us are living in a cyberpunk world right now. Um, there are people in, for example, if you're a Uyghur living in China, uh, in Xinjiang, and you have your voice print, blood, blood sample taken, DNA taken, facial recognition, and you have a car that you carry anywhere, and you have software that they use in this particular province that predicts, like Minority Report, predicts bad behaviour and you can be locked up based on the prediction of what, what you might do in the future, that's cyberpunk and that ain't pretty. Um, and in a way, we all, all of us on this call, in other sense, we're also living in cyberpunk. We all have our smartphones. We're monitored all the time. <laughs> we're measured. The These giant corporations know more about us some of the time than we know about ourselves, certainly enough to predict some of our behaviour and shape our behaviour. So 
Um, it's a, it's a difficult question to answer, actually, because sometimes I feel like we're living in a cyberpunk present as well. We're already there. She's a replicant, isn't she? I'm impressed. How many questions does it usually take to spot one? I don't get it, Tyrell. How many questions? 20, 30 cross-referenced. It took more than 100 for Rachel, didn't it? She doesn't know. She's beginning to suspect, I think. Suspect? How can it not know what it is? Commerce is our goal here at Tyrell. More human than human is our motto. I think we're absolutely there. Yeah, we've been there for, uh, you know, in various ways for a while. You know what's interesting, though? As you're talking, I'm thinking, when Blade Runner came out, a lot of the things that make our current reality feel proto-cyberpunk didn't exist yet, right? Like, Blade Mm. Runner predated the human genome being mapped. It predated cloning as a, you know, as a biopractice. It predated the internet being something available outside of just, you know, closed networks on, uh, you know, campuses. Um, A lot of the things that make today, surveillance as we know it now, a lot of the things that make today feel very cyberpunk didn't exist then. So this film has had an interesting history because when it came out, it, it, it was like so prescient that it's almost kind of frightening to look to look back on. And I think now we watch it partly as a cautionary tale, whereas when it came out, it was this sort of like imagined future of like, you know, just like, look how, look how dark things could get. And now we kind of find ourselves inhabiting that future and wondering what to do about it. Um, of course, a lot of the themes are still really, you know, resonant today more so than ever. But um, but I 100% agree with both of you. Like, I, I feel tremendously uncomfortable with how monitored I am as a human being. Uh, that's a, a, a huge reason I don't use social media very much anymore is because I just feel so mapped and so predicted and so manipulated that I just don't really want to, like, give into that system anymore. And it's feeling not punk, but it's feeling um, kind of, like, refreshingly slightly rebellious to, like, not use it anymore sometimes, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it gives us this, I, I think maybe part of the appeal of it, and Jamie, I, I think your question was brilliant, by the way. I think part of the appeal, why it's sexy, is I think it gives us the, this notion that the world we're in is dystopian and it's real and it's we're not imagining things. It is scary, but there are ways through it. There is an answer at the end of that shaggy dog detective story. There is some deep secret. There is a number on the bottom of a you know carved unicorn that will give us this amazing you know thing to unlock, that there are truths hidden within this increasingly veiled reality that we find ourselves in. And what I love about Blade Runner and 2049 is both of them get at this idea that the actual fundamental truth that's hidden at the bottom of all of this is actually what it means to be human, which is something that is consistently and constantly being tr- stripped away from us, right? And I think this is something that we all feel all the time. You know, we get trapped on our phones, we get trapped doom scrolling, we get trapped in political arguments with people who will never change their minds, feeling afraid of it. We get trapped in these cycles of being terrified about what's happening to our world and geopolitical things that are going on that are scaring us. And we get so trapped in this headspace that we kind of forget to go outside sometimes and feel the grass and realize like that there is something really still there or to just, you know, be present with our families or our friends and to have these moments that are deeply human again. And when we have those moments, they're so refreshing because they're reminding us that no matter how crazy and how entropic everything gets, there are still some truths that never go away. And Blade Runner resoundingly gets us there by having the answer at the end of this detective story be a regained sense of what it means to be human in an inhuman world. And I think, uh, so to me, part of the sexiness of it really comes from that idea. It comes from, you know, once you strip away all the neon and the leather and the cool shit, 
there are it's it's beautiful to see someone rediscover what it is to be human in an environment that's very non-conducive to it because if he can do it if she can do it maybe we can too i think that's part of why i personally come back to it and i just want to say briefly uh you know a great example of the the issue when you start fetishizing cyberpunk as an aesthetic and you stop looking at it as you know something urgent and something that's based in this punk rock mentality look at altered carbon right so richard morgan genius books incredible the series that was on netflix jamie and i both hated because it felt like a perfect Mm. example of what we're talking about which is it was all just like pretty sexy images of people flying around and a lot of what made those books so frightening to me was totally missing from it so i think there has to be some degree of like urgent scary you know stuff pushing cyberpunk along again uh, just contributing to the you know increasingly meandering philosophical discourse going on tonight so apologies for not having anything to really contribute other than just you know the way that you're both talking about this obviously is you know impressing on me that this is obviously cyberpunk but it's also making me question things about why and thanks to jamie's question why this has been such an attractive medium for me personally in my life and why it feels so truthful to me i've seen things you people wouldn't believe. <laughs> Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I think you've nailed something for me that I didn't come to straight away, but the more I thought about what attracted me, the same as you, is that cyberpunk is humanist. And I think what it's dark. Yes, it's dark. Yes, it's cynical. Yes, it's bleak. Because the creators of cyberpunk give a damn about the human condition. Where they still think something about us is about human beings is sacred and that there is a rage against all that being stripped away, whether it's through surveillance, it could be the the slave, the the replicant as slave, so it's a slave society. It could be be just the the, the way we're limited or controlled by uh, technology, sometimes by capitalism. There's a rage at the heart of cyberpunk but that's a humanist one and this is what i sometimes i'm uh, criticized uh, uh, as a writer um some reviewers are like oh it's really dark and it's quite violent but at the heart of what i write and i and i think this comes because it's cyberpunk and because it because i've gotten those ideas from blade runner and all those other cyberpunk films is it cares deeply about the human condition and that is why we have these Often we have these hardball protagonists. Yes, they're cynical. Yes, they're morally ambiguous, but they refuse to break. They refuse to be compromised. Every The whole society around them is compromised. But ultimately, Deckard, at the end of that film, no, he he leaves it. He saves Rachel. We don't know what their... Well, we kind of do know what their fate. I guess we've got the, the second film, but at the time we didn't know their fate. Um, and he refuses ultimately. He bends a lot but he never breaks. So even though his morality is ambiguous for most of that film, he he has the spark of human rebellion in him and it's in Rachel and then they flee at the end. And I'm with you on that. It's because it's, it's a cry for what we're losing against all these forces. And I think, uh, I think that's one of the most important uh, thematic uh, components of cyberpunk. Yeah, I, I'm going to jump right in there, Kim. I, I agree 100% resonate with that. And um, those forces, it, this dichotomy that the, is the nut of the struggle is emerging again, right? You, you've got like, okay, dehumanization versus 
staying human, right, or losing humanity. You you've got the outlaw versus the law. Always, you know, again, this is the David and Goliath thing. But another thing you could put on either side of those slashes is control versus freedom. And mm. um, it, it took me a while in my personal life to realize that, you know, punk as a movement is in so many ways, basically just hippies with like studs and spikes. You know, it's like they, they kind of toughed up. So like they might not be flower children spouting about love, but, you know, like potheads, acid heads, uh, creative new music that's pushing limits you know um punk is very psychedelic whether punks would typically use that word or not and i think that the reason that uh there is this great appeal to cyberpunk is because it is fundamentally revolutionary and countercultural. because mm. yes control is this giant theme but anytime control is a theme perforce freedom is a theme and that's, I think, what's really appealing is that you've always got these characters who, as much as they're being, you know, like brutally steamrolled into a cookie cutter form, if the powers that be would have their way, they don't. They don't, you know, they, they're going to square peg that round hole and they're going to do their own thing. And it's, it's a tale of, you know, as dystopian and as oppressive as your life may feel as a viewer, as it was just getting noted, you know, you can, you can identify with this character who's, who's finding a way through to their own selfhood, you know, when like finding a way to autonomy, when, you know, self naming is increasingly difficult to do because someone else wants to name you, but like you're holding on to that autonomy. And I think that that's, uh, that's absolutely key. Yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of a revolutionary culture. Like when you said cyberpunk manifesto, it's like, yeah, like the, how those words just sound right together. You know, I know for myself, uh, as, as we continue this discussion, I think about what, seduces me about Blade Runner, what seduces me about sci-fi, because I'm a sci-fi nut. I have been all of my life. It's because it allows for questions in a world that doesn't. Sci-fi in and of itself, it sets up a world where you can say, well, what if this? Well, what if that? What if we aren't alone? What if God doesn't exist? What if this? What if that? And again, the constructs that we live in as a world society in real life, there's so much certainty being peddled that questions aren't really welcome. I mean, in, in a corporate setting, in a religious setting, um, in, in many circles, or people might say maybe we have an open door policy, but really they don't. Um, mm. So I love that sci-fi allows me to have, certainly as someone who grew up fundamentalist, conservative Christian, also raised by hippies, questions were not a thing. So then i found sci-fi and I'm like, oh my God, within this context, I can ask whatever question that I want to. So in that sense, it's beautiful. And I think about Blade Runner and certainly 2049 and what I love so much about those films are that it asks me not, it doesn't, it asks some, the, the questions that Blade Runner asks are different than a lot of sci-fi films. Like for instance, with, of course, with Alien. Aliens question, even though there's a lot of things going on, like who are we when we're faced with our darkest our darkest self, or who are we in the dark, who are we in the face of oblivion? But Blade Runner doesn't ask, I don't want to say stereotypical questions, but the normal, usual questions of sci-fi. Blade Runner in that universe pulls us interior saying, well, who are you? And what does that mean? What does it mean to be who you are? And what does that mean to treat other people well? And what does that mean to see humanity in people where governments and um, countries say this is not human? 
those are really specific in my opinion to blade runner but that uh, that view comes from not being very aware of the questions that are posed within the 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 construct of cyberpunk whether it's in other books or other films i'm other, i'm also familiar with films like um that cronenberg film existence where it's sort of cyberpunk it's kind of like organic punk like for micah punk mm. um, it's <laughs> it's uh that goes in a completely different direction than blade runner w- those questions that the, that that film asks are completely different however it's got that noir feel but i'm trying to bring this back to this place where so patrick and i have been in downtown la at night um and uh so there's Grand Central, which is right across from the Bradbury building where they filmed uh, J.F. Sebastian's apartment where Deckard comes in. As it gets darker in L.A. at night, it is not pretty, although it becomes a literal Blade Runner come to life where you have vendors out, you have people of all sorts. It is not fun. It is not cool. Uh, you, If the, the wrong people will feel unsafe, meet norm, meaning women. Um, but the aesthetic is gorgeous. But it is mm. not a fun world. And then I was downtown a couple, uh, however long ago it was, a um, few weeks back, and I saw a taxi drive by, and there were two people in the back, and there was nobody driving the taxi because it was a driverless taxi. And it was cool wow. to think of because, again, I love tech. At the same time, I don't know who in this conversation brought it up, but it's that lack of humanity that's scary. But I also love the idea of robots and robotics and augmentation. But I'm also watching a show called Arcane, which deals with augmentation, which is fully cyberpunk. And these people are fucking miserable. They're miserable. And the the augmentation's kind of cool, but it's come at the expense of their bodies. And that is not cool. So I, I don't have like a, a thesis for all of this. I think it's it's interesting. I, I'm fascinated by the world of cyberpunk, but I don't go for aesthetics. I go for story. And if the story's working, then the aesthetics work. And so I, I, I kind of posit all of these things to kind of share, I guess, what's kind of swirling in my mind when I engage this topic. Yeah, Jamie, the, the, what, I mean, one of the, the things you, um, you focused on then was this sense of um, identity. And this, this almost, ex- it's. It, it, I think Blade Runner, and I think a lot of cyberpunk is very existential, in the sense of you have these protagonists who are completely alien. On the one hand, alienated from the world around them, the dark city, for example, but also very much questioning their humanity and what it means to be human. And the and the cyberpunk itself questions what it is to be human. And so I think, I think this goes all the way back to the hardboard literature, which I think was very existential. In fact, the existentialist, so Jean-Paul Sartre, who is said to have founded existentialism, said what hardboard fiction did was irrationally and ecstatically create existentialism. He said, but of course, being arrogant, he's like, but I knew what I was doing and I formalised it and here it is. But the hardboard writers and film noir accidentally created a form of it were, were forming some of the initial texts of existentialist philosophy. Um, I think that one of the things that I've that represents that alienation and represents that inner turmoil of those protagonists is the harsh environment. 
I think in a lot of these films, the environment without reflects your the psychological state of the main character. And so you can have absolutely, if you have a, like a Blade Runner, never stops raining and it's dark all the time and you don't see light till the very end, that's Deckard. That's his internal psychological disposition. But I think the cool thing is I think you can do that in other ways. So in this is in some Australian neo-noir, but certainly in one of my, I just got a book coming out, which Richard Morgan just blurred for me, Patrick. Just I got the blurb two days ago. Um, that's in the Australian desert where there is no, where the environment is utterly oppressive. There's no neon. There's no darkness. It's all bright, shining light. But again, the oppressiveness of the environment reflects the internal disposition of the main character. So I think I think that, that alienation that Jamie was talking about, that existential questions about what is it, about trying to grasp on hold to a sense of your humanity and all of this. Yeah, man. I mean, that's absolutely a, a core theme, I think, in cyberpunk. Yeah, I think it's easy to get lost in the idea that the aesthetic is just uh, the visuals or just the sensory inputs, you know, what it sounds like, what it looks like, what what those images and sounds can make you imagine it might smell like, et cetera. But I think a really key thing about the aesthetic is that... Um, there's a there's a cultural element to the aesthetic that's always there, and this ties into the the struggle, you know, and the whole uh, losing freedom, losing individuality, losing humanity, losing identity. That that's always part of the aesthetic. There's always this, you know, I can't think of a cyberpunk tale that isn't, of course, always classically stories are considered to have to have conflict. I would, as a writer, I would push back against that. There's room to play with that, but clearly, it's the uh, the convention. But it's amplified you know it's, i mean it's struggle on steroids in in cyberpunk it's always always that's part of the aesthetic and i think um another thing that didn't really get mentioned much is ai as a theme as a sort of central trope of cyberpunk and i feel that that's especially why um blade runner shines really strongly that way because a lot of cyberpunk addresses the idea of can completely cyber entities be alive right you know we've got this whole question of potentially sentient like general ai in the real world coming up now couldn't be much more cyberpunk than that like is it going to be a life form is it going to be sentient is it going to have emotions is it going to have ethics and clearly you look at a character like like roy batty i mean you know arguably the the most feeling character in that whole movie um it's very much addressing the question of is artificial life you know real life despite being artificial and i think that yeah that's that's a you can't get much more cyberpunk than addressing that. And then when you've got the context that it's in, in terms of, you know, the aesthetic and everything else, it just, uh, it just sings in that way. I feel like there's such an amazing amount more we could talk about with this, but in the interest of having this episode be a manageable length and letting everybody go about their evenings and their days around the world through joining this call, uh, we're going to kind of grind it to a halt, unfortunately, but I just want to, you know, call out how amazing it is that we went from Jean-Paul Sartre to talking about uh, artificial intelligence being a sentient being waking up from <laughs> in the span of about two minutes. This episode has been so much fun. Uh, and I, I really, I, my head is buzzing. I, like, I feel like uh, I'm going to be up late tonight, laying in bed, thinking about beautiful, terrible dystopian possibilities. <laughs> uh, thank you so much to both of you for coming on. Uh, before we wrap you know, we just want to say if, if people want to, you know, keep up with what you're both up to, you know, how can they how can they do so? If you have any projects you'd like to plug, you know, go ahead. I've been scrolling notes 
Well, we've been talking. I I have about twenty things <laughs> that I've underlined that we didn't get to. Um, uh, Jamie, private. Uh, I should say, Patrick, privacy is punk. I'm just going to say that. It, if you want to disconnect, if you don't want to be monitored, that's punk mm-hmm. because yeah. that is you're working against the mainstream right now. But uh, what? Uh, sorry, uh, let's. This has been great. I could have talked. I could have. I, I I looked at the clock. And I said, "Oh, we've been going for an hour." I didn't. It didn't even feel like it. Anyway, uh, my projects. Oh, I'm a cyberpunk writer. Uh, so I, 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 my debut, Thirty Six Streets, came out a couple of years ago. Won a few awards. I have a a, a collection called Neon Leviathan. Came out about four years ago now. Um, that's also cyberpunk set in the same world. But this year, and then I had the the Bishop novel came out in just a month ago, I think it was. Two months ago, maybe now. Um, I have two works coming out this year. Uh, one is a novella. Uh, it's set in the same world as 36 Streets. It's very cyberpunk. I pitched it as Mad Max meets Johnny Mnemonic, um, which is kind of, it's pretty true. It's kind of true. You read and go, yeah, okay, that's that's true. Uh, it's called Ghost of the Neon God. It's set in Australia. It's got an AI and petty crooks, and it's I'm really I'm really proud of that. And later this year, I've got a novel called The Escher Man, which is again set in that cyberpunk world. It's in um, set in Macau, uh, where I used to spend a lot of time. Um, uh, and that's coming out at the end of the year. So I'm going to have four works by the end of the year. I'll have four works set in the the same universe, the same cyberpunk universe. So I'm going to be, um, God, yeah, I'm going to be on the doing promo all year, which I'm not really looking forward to. <laughs> but uh, this has been fantastic. Thank you for inviting me on. Um, I love talking about Blade Runner. Uh, uh, I'm, and I'm, I'm going to have to listen to more of your podcasts because I'm so obsessed with that bloody movie. A lot of good episodes in the can. You're going to have fun. And maybe we'll reconvene for a, a cyberpunk part two featuring blade runner 2049 we didn't really get yes. into that um i think that would be an interesting discussion so maybe we can talk about that at some point but again I, I, thank you for coming on the show i look back at all the articles i've written on um blade runner on my website and i, I have three in a row on cyberpunk 2049 uh which i reread i'm like oh cool and then but i had i haven't seen it in so long i thought about it but i would i would love to whatever you need before to come back to talk about Blade Runner, or the, even the, or even your proposition, Jamie, about the links between cyberpunk and Alien as well, which is another interesting topic. Um, oh yeah, please, I'd be on for that as well. Yeah, definitely. As far as myself, I'm not really trying to pursue much interface with the public for art, but uh, I do write or have written some cyberpunk as well. Um, I've got a piece called Nyarlat's Kiss, which you're never going to spell the way that I did, but uh, it's kind of a HP Lovecraft. Uh, inspired cyberpunk thing. So if you want some ancient horror crawling into the the dark future, um, that's a kind of thing that you could check out. But people could find me on on Instagram, uh, just A T Johnston. So that's A period T period J O H N S T O N. Um, I'd be happy to talk to anybody who you know had anything to say about this episode, or they think they want they want to get a taste of some strange, eldritch uh, cyberpunk stuff, Cthulhu punk, as some would call that niche subgenre. Yeah, feel free. And uh, it's been such a pleasure to speak to all you guys. And yeah, super stoked. Thanks again. Yeah, Cthulhu Punk, sign me up for that. My God. Uh, <laughs> thank you both so much for coming on. Yes. Uh, this has been an absolute blast, of, uh, obviously, to be continued. And the Alien one has already been discussed. And uh, so we'll be back in touch, I'm sure, with both of you on that in the near future Excellent. as well. Thank you so much. 
If you would like to find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com. If you would like to support the show via Patreon, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support. Thank you.